Okay. We had started discussing the unity of Hashem, the unity of God, and the and the unity of Hashem is understood as being the idea of Hashem not changing. That despite the fact that the world was created, Hashem has remained unchanged. What sense could we think that Hashem has changed due to the fact that the world was created? What, what about Hashem might we think is different? His aloneness. His, I want to just that that's a description of him, that his aloneness. Okay. And we're saying his aloneness is unchanged, even though the world is created, right? And then we spoke, and there's actually two expressions: he created, it was created, right? Because there, there's really two aspects or, or two levels of Hashem's creating. On the one hand, Hashem's desire that there would be a world his intent, his will, however you want to phrase it, his thought is sufficient to create. And unlike our thoughts or intents, which don't actually have any direct power over reality, right? It would be wrong to say that Hashem's thoughts or intentions or will, however you want to phrase it, doesn't have that power. At the same time, since thought is all about the thinker, intention is all about who is intending, if reality is created merely from Hashem's intent, then reality doesn't have the otherness. Um, it doesn't have um, its own criteria, its own characteristics. And so in order for Hashem to create something that is other, He would have to relate to it in a kind of othering way, right? And that's the idea of what communicate with other people, speech, right? Speech is the way we bridge the gap between ourselves and others. So we want to think about the fact that Hashem creates a world of other beings, each with their own nature, each with their own limitations, right? That idea really only makes sense if you think about having some kind of power analogous to speech, right? So, and this is reflected in the notion of whether, of whether we describe Hashem's creation in kind of an active or passive sense. When we say they were created, we're indicating that Hashem doesn't have to do anything to create them. They just come into existence as a result of His intent, his desire, whereas when we speak about Hashem creating, we're talking about kind of like an active engagement, right? which is the idea of Hashem speaking the creations into being. And again, the Hebrew word vayomer actually carries both meanings. And in terms of the word bria, creation, we find sometimes the verse says bara, he creates, and sometimes it says nivru, they were created, carrying both meanings. Okay. And so what we, what we have to come to understand is how can it be that Hashem, that the same way Hashem was alone even before the world's come into being, even on the, the level of coming to being from his intention, of the, from his desire, from his thought, his degree of aloneness is unchanged even after they're brought into being as other distinct entities. Seemingly Hashem is not alone in the same way and to the same degree. Okay. So that's what needs to be explained. We are on um, page 86. And like I said before, I'm not going to like spend time on every little detail um, because it's, I think it's, 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 
Do you guys have the page no, numbers in your copies? Uh-uh. It says 52 for that. Yeah, so I want you, yeah, so turn the page. So you're on page 50. Yeah, there. There. The one that has a chavav on the Hebrew side. I'm not going to spend time on every little nuance, even though we could, um, because I do want to keep the main structure of the ideas clear, and it's abstract and difficult enough as it is. Okay. Four. So we're on the fourth line. For just as he was all alone, single, and unique before they were created, so too he is alone and single and unique after they were created. And again, um, in, the, in the actual Hebrew, it says... Um, They were, it says, Hibarim, they were created before Hibarim, after Shabarim, he created them. It shifts from the passive to the active. For whatever reason, our translator decided to ignore that. Since beside him, everything else is as nothing, verily as null and void. Okay. So, how can we say that Hashem is alone? After all, there's things that have been created, right? He, they've been created f- first from his intent and moreover from his speech from his engaging with them as others, right? making other things, that, that seems to compromise his aloneness. It's not the same. What is the idea? What is the core explanation of how Hashem remains alone before anything was created to after it creates them? Then nothing else actually exists. That's not what it says. Everything is not I'm going to be annoying. The reason I'm going to be annoying is because it's very easy to miss the point. And so unless someone uses language you, that, that takes it very clear to me that they got the point, I'm just going to keep like, waiting for someone's time. You're, I mean, it could be you got the point, but your language could be misinterpreted. So. Everything is in. That's definitely not what it says. Everything is within. Beside him, everything is Everything is what, did you say? Is as nothing. What does it mean, is as nothing? That's not actually nothing compared to him. It means it's not actually nothing. It's, um, what's it? It's as if it was nothing. That's what it says. Is as. Yeah, in, in, in the Hebrew, um, in the Hebrew, it, it's actually more explicit. For some reason... The Hebrew, um, it says, "Dekula kamei," that everything before him, "Kolay choshiv," is considered like nothing, "Ukain v'efes mamish," and like really null and nothing. Literally, lots of words for emphasizing how nothing. But it doesn't say it is nothing. It says it is considered choshiv. Considered, right? Our translator wanted to. It's considered. Yeah, but it's not, is it saying, in other words, like this. Are we denying the act of, are we saying, it, we, you think God created the world, but he really didn't. <laughs> is, that what, is, that, is that the explanation? No. no. Are we saying everything is really God? No. So I want to stop here and, and it's very important to, to draw a distinction between several ideas, okay? especially because we often suffice with slogans rather than real understanding when dealing with these deep matters, Okay. There's nothing other than God. God created the world. Option one is to say, well, it only appears that God created the world. He didn't actually create the world. So really, there's only God. That, that's an idea. There's only God. 
because the world is in some sense really God. That's also an idea. Is it the same idea as the first idea? No. Does it mean that there's still only God, but in two very different ways, right? Does the Alter Bentan use either of those ideas? Does he negate the act of creation saying it didn't really happen? No. And is he saying that somehow we can identify the creations with their creator? No. What's he saying? It's as if it's nothing, right? It's considered nothing, right? Okay. In other words, in order for, to compromise Hashem's aloneness, there needs to be, the, the, the creations would need to have some kind of significance vis-a-vis Hashem. Go back to what we said about other, right? Other when was created, he was alone, right? Mm-hmm. He was alone because there were no other humans. But was he alone? But then Hashem created animals, right? He was, still alone. he was alone in his humanity, but he wasn't alone like there was an ecosystem, right? He certainly wasn't alone as a physical being, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. In other words, there's different ways of him relating to things. And in some senses, some things have significance and some things they don't, right? The only time you could say he's not alone at all is when there's another human being who's equal to him. Okay. Now let's reverse that. With Hashem, everything that Hashem creates is, at least, as far as Hashem is concerned, not significant. How not significant? It's considered to be nothing. How nothing? Literally. Like, yeah, really, like, really, 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 really yeah, nothing. Okay, right? Oh, okay, that's a good thing. Like, what's all the levels of nothing? We can talk about that, okay? Not now. But what, what it means is, is the world like a little significant to Hashem? No. No. Okay. So, if the, if the world that, that comes into being is completely, absolutely, totally insignificant to Hashem, it, say, does is his aloneness change? I am going to be very, very annoying, and I will not let people play word games in this class. So, I'm going to explain to you what I mean, okay? Remember how I asked, what about Hashem doesn't change? I wanted you to describe Hashem. Don't tell me he's the only thing that exists, because that's like taking like an objective third-party point of view. There's God, and there's nothing else. Oh, now there's God, and there's something else, right? That's me as a third-party looking at stuff. We want to know what about Hashem doesn't change, right? And I insisted on using a, an English word, right? There's aloneness, right? What does it mean to be alone? Let's flesh that out so it's a little bit clearer. There's nobody else. What? There's nobody else beside you. Well, okay, let's contrast that. Could you be lonely? Yeah. No, but it's different. It's different. How is it different? Loneliness is an internal feeling, internal st- like internal feeling, internal state, and alone is factually being like... Just one. <laughs> okay. So this is, this, is, this is the problem that we're going to have. When we learn Hasidus, that distinction between kind of subjective feelings and objective reality has to disappear. I'll explain to you what I mean. Okay. I don't mean to say that everything somebody experiences is, is equally real or equally important and people can't make mistakes. What I mean to say is, is like this. 
if we're talking about Hasidus, or broadly speaking, we're talking about theology, most of what we're talking about is not physical, correct? We only have two things that we can think about, okay? Only two things our minds can model things based on, compare things to. One are rocks, and the other is the human psychological experience. That's it. In other words, raw and animate physical stuff and things that happen within the psyche of a person. Let's take some examples, okay? A friendship. Which category does that go in? Second, right? Friendship is how people feel and relate and identify towards each other. And then it, it's manifest in their different actions, right? A fire? First. First. Okay. Now, let's go one step deeper. If I want to understand things qualitatively, which kind of modeling do I need to use? The second one. In fact, we, we do this all the time without even realizing it when we're trying to even understand the physical. So remember like in high school you learned... You learned um, you learn physics, and I'm, some people learn physics. Okay, so you learn things like um, things can things can have a things can like um, they move around, right? Because there's energy, right? Okay. Why do things need energy to move around? Why things need, like, like if this thing doesn't have energy, it's going to stay still. Why? Right. So when you're explaining that to kids, right, you'll say things like, you, you, you often say things like, things want to stay still. Here's the word want. And it needs something to get them to move. Do you see how we're, we're kind of projecting a psychological state and that makes it easy for the, the, you know, the sixth grader, seventh grader to pick up what you mean, right? We will say things like, the electrons prefer this. Okay. And we do this all the time, right? Right? Um, you know, uh, 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 you know, the 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 um, it's trying to when we talk about an inanimate object. Okay. In other words, we cannot help but make sense of reality without drawing on the models of psychological experience. So I don't mean to say that everything is like the human psychological experience. I just mean to say is that if if you're going to only relate to things as if they're inanimate completely. You end up living, you end up having to describe things purely quantitatively. It is this big, it is this hot, it moves this fast. And that's not very useful for getting at anything interesting, certainly nothing theological. Okay? So, given that, Qualitatively, if I say there is what it, there's something that it is to be lonely and there's something it is to be alone, and those are two qualitative states of being. What's the difference? And by the way, I'm going to take out now the, the actual experience part. Like you may be lonely and not be aware that you might be not experiencing your loneliness, but it's, that's happening within you. I don't really care whether you're consciously experiencing it or not. What is the what is the difference between a qualitative state of aloneness versus loneliness? Being alone versus being lonely. Whether you're aware of it, whether you're not aware of it. Okay, good. So there's some. The, the thing with lonely is loneliness is the lack of others. The void of others. And when there's a lack of others and the void of others, that creates a sense of an emptiness. What is aloneness? 
in contrast. The lack of anything? No. There is no others. In other words, if you were in a state of loneliness and someone else showed up, you would experience that as an improvement, right? But if you are alone, right, and someone else shows up, what is it? How are you going to experience that? Well, well, so you lost the alone. You've lost the aloneness. You've lost that, and that would seem like to be a negative thing. Now, let's make this a little more concrete by using examples, right? If you are trying to pray, we're going to not count God as someone else right now. If you are trying to pray, would you rather be alone or not alone? Why? Okay. In fact. If you're praying and you know that someone else is looking at you at the other side of the room, you can kind of sense that in your consciousness, it makes it very difficult to pray. Why? Because you're not alone. You're not alone, right? Prayer, in Hebrew, prayer is a state of his baidudus, of aloneness. And breast make a big thing, you go out into the field and, da, 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 and they, they have a certain, they have a certain like, kind of ritual around being alone with Hashem. But it's nothing unique to breast okay? there, There's a famous saying that gets quoted in Chabad, okay, is that it's good to be alone amongst people. What does that mean? Do you have to go out into the field where no one's around in order to be alone with God? Or you can be alone in God in a shul. You can, sit on the, you can sit on the subway and be alone with God, even though the subway's crowded. Right, you find something deep and internal to which there is no, there is no other. Loneliness is when there is an other and I'm lacking the other. Right? Now, human beings, are we creatures of aloneness or creatures of loneliness? loneliness? Both. Think about it. What happens if you live a life and you never have others to connect to? You're lonely. On the other hand, think of a life where you never have the opportunity to withdraw into yourself and there's just kind of a, a state of being, a space where, where there is no one else. There's just you internally, your own space, your own getting in touch with yourself. If that doesn't happen. Human beings have this tension because we are creatures that thrive by being connected to others and by being alone. And we somehow have to navigate that. Right? Okay, good. Now, Hashem is what kind of a being? He's alone. What does that mean? He can't also be alone. No, he can't be lonely because there's a basic principle in Judaism. He it's a matter. There's no notion of lack by Hashem. This is very important. No, not, I mean, setting aside whether we can describe Hashem at all, the kind of first basic rule of Jewish philosophy is any word that connotes a deficiency, in other words, something that could be improved upon, cannot be used in its straightforward meaning to refer to Hashem. Hashem cannot create the world because he is lonely because that would imply that he is deficient. And the kind of basic definition of God is a being who's not deficient. There's a whole discussion about he would not create the world because he did not create the world because he was lonely. That's right. not, yeah. So that's not, yeah. it's not really either in that sense. Well, no, no, so now Hashem is alone. In fact, Hashem is more alone than we are. Right. In other words, Hashem is a being who... And, and he'll never stop being alone. Well, that's the whole point. Right. Okay. So now, why is he still alone? I'm here. That's the question, right? If I'm here, why is he still alone? What's the answer? Because he's not deficient. No. 
That, that's not the. That's not the. If I'm trying to pray, I'm trying to dive, and I'm trying to really, really go deeper. Let me finish the question. Don't, and and I and and I'm in a room by myself or whatever, right? Or and then someone walks into the room, right? And I feel like I'm not alone anymore, right? I wouldn't say that's an improvement, but it's a change, right? I can't be in that same state of concentration, same sense of connection. To, to Hashem, to myself that I was, right? Okay. Why? Why, why can't I? Because think about it, before, when, when, I, when, when the room was empty, I could do it. Why can't, why can't I do it now? Because we have both Because we have this, because I, 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 that other person carries some significance to me. And because they carry some significance to me, right, they've disrupted my state of aloneness. Right? But the ants in the room, do they disrupt my state of aloneness, assuming that I'm mentally healthy? No. no. Now, again, if I, if, I, if, I, if I kind of extend the notion of aloneness to beyond just that, that very narrow sense into a more existential state, I mean, obviously, the fact that there are ants there, I, I, I mean, if there are ants in my house, right, I go get spray. I mean, they do count on some level. But if I am alone and then something enters my reality that for me counts for nothing, Am I still alone? It is the absolute insignificance of the creations that is the key to understanding how Hashem remains unchanged. Yeah. Does it make sense to say that being alone is a a quantitative experience and being alone is a qualitative experience? No, no. I want you to know this both. Now, if you go a little bit deeper, what does it mean to be alone? It means that I am sufficient for myself. And I am so sufficient for myself. Nothing can... Nothing outside of me is, is, uh, is going to enhance me. I don't feel a lack of anything. I mean, what, why is it hard to pray? Why is it hard to pray? Let, let's oh, skip. Oh. Right? It's hard to get to that state of aloneness. But we're never going to be alone. Sure you can. Because... Within a limited scope of, a hu- of what human beings are capable of. Sure we can. But I have a question about that. Just, let me finish that. It's very hard to pray because when you try to pray, what do you instantly become aware of? Other people, other other stuff, what's going to happen later, right? Those are all things other than yourself that feel like they need your attention, engagement, right? So in order to pray, what would you have to do? Separate. Right, you'd have to disassociate from those things, right? Let go of those things. You would have to render those things, right, not significant. And then you can pray. By the way, you keep always asking questions about halacha and prayer. Did you know that's a halacha and shulchan aruch? According to Jewish law, you are required to, before you pray, to pause. Mm-hmm. For what purpose? Disassociate. To disassociate yourself from everything other than. But isn't it that this is the etzora that is coming from us to dissociate? Like it's not something specifically external that like doesn't matter if it's the window is opening or the person's walking in or I'm thinking about what I'm going to do after I will dive in. Like this is not something that is specifically external to the reality that I like something that is coming from, from myself internally. 
Like, but it, that, 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 it's, it's, no, it, it's coming internally, but it means that you're, in other words, it's the side of you that's not always the side of you that, that, that everything else does matter, everything else does count, everything else does have a hold on you and upon you. I'm not going to get into how you're supposed to do that. That's not what this class is about. Okay? We have to work very hard to achieve a state of aloneness. And there's different degrees and kinds of aloneness, right? But Hashem starts off as alone. Okay? And why does the introduction of creations not change his aloneness? Because it's not significant. Because it's not significant. So why do we not be significant? How do we not be significant? Decide to. He's, he, could he be significant? Hold that question. You wanted to ask something and I told you to wait. So. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask, like, essentially, if you're alone, right? You're alone by yourself in a room in the world, let's say, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's something smaller than you or on a lower level than you, it may not have an effect on you, but something bigger than you probably would, right? It could even be smaller than you could have an effect on you. But an effect on your aloneness. Yes, yes. Something bigger than you would probably have an effect on that, especially if it's all-encompassing and if it's always there and will never not be there. So does that mean that we technically can never be alone because the Shem will always exist? Because he is essentially bigger than us, to put it into those words. Um, the answer is yes, but on a deeper level, no. Because the deeper level, part of, there is a separate issue, which is that you can, the only things that can compromise your aloneness are things that are other than yourself. So in other words, what what you're saying is, in other words, if I'm alone, in order for something to compromise my aloneness needs to be something other than me needs to carry some significance. Well, something that's much grander than me, much bigger than me, much profounder than me, certainly is going to have significance, right? Unless I'm completely dull and dim-witted and don't get it. Okay, which many of us are relative to God. But let's say we get past that point. So then obviously we're not alone anymore. But if we go a little bit deeper and say, well, what if God it shouldn't really be viewed as an other? Which is a separate issue. And if that's the case, then we could be alone. Now, part of, the, the, the part of Jewish mysticism is the process not just of coming to be aware of God, but coming to realize that as that God is not an other. Okay? So as you move through the, the different stages in prayer, it's not just you become more aware of God, you become less aware, you sense, you become le- you sense yourself as less of a distinct entity from him. Right. And so the ultimate form of prayer would be you're alone, not because God is insignificant. Just because you are the but be- same. Right, because 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 what 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 makes you what makes you separate from God has dissolved away, and that's like a okay, so it's not really relevant to here, but the, so there's two levels to answering your question. You know. Yeah, um, it's interesting because in our when we, we are, can get to the space when we're alone and therefore can connect to God, it means that aloneness is not a two way street necessarily, because if we are alone with him, he's not necessarily alone with us. I'm gonna leave that, pun intended, alone for right now. <laughs> okay, I, I will just say one other thing which just occurred to me, which is, this is actually one of the reasons later on the Alter is gonna talk about, about why Torah study is actually the greatest form of service of God. Because in Torah study, you can actually achieve the highest state of being unified and alone with God. I'm not going to go into why that is, but actually surpassing prayer. 
Um, without getting too into it, even in the most lofty states of prayer, there is still somewhat of a subject-object relationship between you and God. God is someone you are aware of. And in, and in, and in Torah study, you can actually move past that. But I'm not going to go into it right now. Okay. Um, I want to stop and dwell on this point because I, what, I, what I want to differentiate is between the actual idea itself and then the way the altar goes and explains it. What the, altar, the idea itself is aloneness is not challenged or compromised in any way if the other things are completely insignificant. Then you have a question of how do we explain the insignificance of the creation? And then you can ask, why is that the explanation used? If there's many ways you could explain it. Okay. Now, there's an immediate question that people ask this, but, but God created the world for a reason, right? If he created the world for a reason, obviously it's significant, right? Yeah? Right. Okay. I want someone to come up with a counter-argument. I want you to actually think. That's, a, that's an argument everyone uses. If God created it, it must be important to God, right? Come up with a counter-argument. Why, that, why that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Maybe the end result is what's important to God and not necessarily getting there. Maybe the world being perfect at the end is the significant part and getting there is just a part of that. Right, well, two problems. One, then you're still saying there's something that is significant other than God. You haven't solved the problem of his aloneness, right? Okay. Number two, if the means is not really necessary, then it's significant in its own right. That's why we stuck it in. If the means is necessary, then it's significant because it plays the role of the means. So you haven't accomplished anything on the means level either. So if God created something, doesn't that mean it's important? Yeah. Maybe his desire for it, like his intention for it, was the thing that's significant to him. Okay, flesh that out. You're, you're going in a good direction. Yeah, continue. Like, Because Hashem's desire is part, it's still hidden. There's nothing separate from it. So that... Right, okay, right, good. So let me just stop you there, and then you'll continue. Right? Hashem and his desire, we're not worrying that the desire per se compromises aloneness. Okay, continue. So that, that gives us our like, reason why we're here. So that's why we think that we were created for a reason, but really once it was a creation. Not once it was a... I stopped there because I don't really understand my idea yet. By the way, if you ever want a good analogy for Chachma, you just experienced it. Yeah. Where, where, you know, the, 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 the truth of the idea illuminated your mind, but you didn't really know how to hold on to it. Yes, that's what <laughs> happened there. <laughs> yeah. If you would stay on the level of intent, you would go into the speech because the speech is... Like existing still, in, like independently, because the world can like if it was so significant, then why would bad things happen? Like why? No, 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 no. you're you're you're, you're overcomplicating it. No, but like, maybe we're not that significant. Oh, well, clearly not. That's what he says. So how can you say that God creates the world and he, right, for some kind of, he obviously has a desire, whatever, he creates the world, and then how can you say that we're not significant? We would see the personal, we would see, we would see revealed involvement of The only thing that's significant about us is that we're fulfilling his desire, because that's the desire. Okay, okay, so now we're moving on. If the only thing that's significant is we're fulfilling his desire, okay, but I'm fulfilling his desire, so I'm significant. So you become part of his heart, 
Are toilets significant? Yeah. Why? They are. Useful. Oh, they're very significant. You ever, have you ever lived in a house without a functional toilet? <laughs> they're not. They're just necessary. <laughs> Would you like to explain to me the difference between the words significant and necessary? Yeah. Significant is something that you pay attention to, right? Yes. You have to can take into consideration. Oh, you could live without a toilet. In fact, by the way, I would say we use the word necessary more or less the same way. Sometimes we say things necessary mean it in a more loose sense and a more strict sense. A lot of words in English that are really just more, more or less mean the same thing. Necessary is like bare minimum. Yeah, but people don't use that for bare minimum always. Like, it's necessary. I, I, can't, I can't live without my phone. They don't really mean that. It's a matter of degree. It's, you know, how spoiled you are. Yeah. Toilets are important. Toilets are significant. Toilets are necessary. Those are all legitimate things to say. Okay. Okay. Now, why? In what way? In what? No, no. I mean, in anyways, if we didn't have, we had, if we had like an outhouse or something, it takes time out to walk. It's harder to clean. It would be a struggle. It would complain. It'd be on our minds. Um, now it's easier. It's more efficient. It's faster. It's cleaner. And it helps our body so they're not significant because of our desire for them. They're significant right. because of their actual characteristics. Mm-hmm. So they, in their own right, these toilets are significant. Right? Okay. Wait, why? Because without a toilet, you would have to waste time going to the outhouse. You would have hygiene issues. There would be more disease. Because if you were to say, look, I'll make you a toilet. But the toilet is going to be 50 miles away. It's not going to flush, right? You say, well, <laughs> then it doesn't serve my purposes as a toilet. In other words, what makes the toilet significant are the characteristics that it has. That's, now, okay, in other words, my desires, my will is not what makes the toilet significant. The toilet is significant because it has characteristics which make it important, okay? I'll give you another example, right? We all think our phones are pretty significant. Okay, if... Oh, the cell service were to go down no, permanently, these become significant? No. They lose their significance, right? So they're sig- because their significance is not about my desires. Their significance is that they have certain characteristics. When embedded in a society which can support those characteristics, it, have, it does things, right? Okay. Is your eye significant? Yes. Why? Let's you see, right? Yeah, right. Again, its characteristics make it significant. significant. Okay. Desire and significance is not significant. That's exactly what I'm trying to get. Let's contrast this now. Um, I have a physics book, which I'm sure is not going to come as a shock to you. Um, but it's, this physics book um, is very old. It's so old, for those of you who know anything about physics, it um, speaks about the theoretical concept of the neutron and how that would help explain the stability of the atom. That's pretty old, right? Yeah. Why do I have this physics book? <laughs> no. It shows how much progress you've made in a short amount of time. These are the props in the It was my grandfather's when he went to college. He also had a slide rule. My brother has the slide rule. If you don't know what a slide rule is, you'll look it up after class. Um, 
a slide rule. Now, um, where is this book? That's right. <laughs> Why? Because I have no need for it. I have no need for it. Is it, you know, is that particular book, that particular text, of, have any significance in my life? No. No. Right? I have bestowed upon it importance that has really nothing to do with it at all. It has to do with, it, with the fact that I associate it with my grandfather, right? The minute I don't associate it with my grandfather, what about that book? What about that book? Throw it in the trash. Garbage. I don't need it. So if you take me and my own particular um, way of experiencing the world out of the picture, there's no way you can explain why that book has any significance to me. Right? Whereas a toilet, I don't even know much about you to understand why a toilet is significant, right? Or a cell phone is significant when there's, you know, functioning cellular network, etc., right? Okay. So, if God creates the world, does that necessarily make the world significant? No. It could be that God has some sort of will or desire that somehow relates to the world. It could be that. But if that will or desire has nothing to do with, the, with, with, doesn't stem from what the world is, then even with that desire, it's not significant. Now, to make a very simple analogy for this idea, imagine you have a person who lives in the sewer, can't get their life together, doesn't even realize how pathetic they are. That's how pathetic they are. Right? In other words, every virtue that a human being could possibly attain, any sense of nobility and human dignity that a person could, could achieve in their life, this person is totally lacking. Okay? Now imagine you have, and there's always how these analogies work, because you have a great and noble king. And the great and noble king decides that that guy, Specifically, that guy is the one that he wants to be sitting at the head table at the royal banquet with him. Is that because that guy is significant? No, it's because the king is a little woo. <laughs> the king is his own Mishigas going on, which you know, I'm like, I don't know what the, the king's coming from his own weird place, and I guess from that place, it works for the king, right? But like, you know, it, it doesn't, there, there's nothing about that guy that explains why that should be the case, right? So if I don't know what role the world serves in God's grand desire for anything, right? And I also don't know what God's desires really are about and what motivates him because I'm not God, right? Then I just have to look from a kind of a more... Um, existential level, which is what is, the, what is this thing called the world? What is this thing called the created being? What is this thing called God? Does a created being have significance to a being like God? And the answer to that, the altar is saying is, no. If God then decides to be a little bit crazy, that's his own business. Because what I want you to understand is, what I want you to understand is, we often work backwards. We think that because things are significant, because things have characteristics that make them matter, that has something to do with our desires. It's not true, right? We're in a certain sense, 
Food is important because without it, you'll die. <laughs> Air is important because without it, you'll die, right? Cell phones are important without it, you can't call your mother. Right? So, like, your, your individual, you know, desires and preferences have nothing, don't really play a role in that. When do your individual desires and preferences really play a role? On things that, objectively speaking, it makes no sense that would have any significance to you. And yet, for some reason, you're holding on to them in the back of your closet. I mean, set aside what we're going to learn in a minute. Let's just think about this without, without any of the fancy chassidus for a moment. Yep. Um, does God die? Is God born? Okay. So the whole notion of like coming in and out of existence is like, like not. So God is eternal or transcendent of time, yeah? Um, does God depend on things in order to thrive? Like if he doesn't get enough food or oxygen or like enough social stimulation, mm-hmm. he gets bored? No, okay. Yeah. So does it really make sense that... that um, uh, a monkey who's capable of doing algebra, um, singing songs in Hebrew, is going to really like be important to God. But that does not make sense. I mean, let's just be honest. Right? It does not make sense. So if the monkey who can do algebra, singing songs in Hebrew is important to God, that's not a statement about the importance of the monkey. It's a statement about how God is weird. Okay. Now, does God happen to value monkeys who can do algebra singing songs in Hebrew? What are you? A monkey capable of doing algebra who God would like you to sing some songs in Hebrew from time to time. Explain to me the difference between you and a monkey other than the fact that you can do algebra and they can't. Because, I mean, think about, it. think about it for a second, right? Our body structure is more or less the same kind of body structure. And there's a reason why in, 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 uh, in biology they think that, that great apes and, monk and, and human beings and monkeys all evolved from the same things. They're basically fundamental somebody, which is we can do algebra and, you know, maybe have some degree of moral reasoning. Maybe. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> um, I mean, the algebra is going to say something much more profound than what I'm saying. Okay, I want to be clear. <laughs> I going to say something much more profound. But you know, you know, this is why there's a certain truth like, to, the, to, the, to, the, to the secular person, I'm not saying the atheist, who thinks that adopts this kind of like the old Greek philosophical view that it doesn't make sense to say that your worship of God or your service of God really matters. Because that would presuppose that like, there is some way in which you have some kind of significance based on your own characteristics, your own, your own properties that carry some weight with the divine being source of all existence. And that's just kind of hard to explain. Human beings need to be hygienic, hence toilets have become important. Right? An eternal self-sufficient being doesn't really need to be praised in Hebrew by sophisticated monkeys. Okay. So to answer the question... Saying that God creates us for a purpose doesn't necessarily mean we as an entities carry significance to God. 
One does not necessarily follow from. That's the only point I'm trying to illustrate here. Now, so in time, you actually have to do two separate things. You have to understand what is the world vis-a-vis God? What is the state of the world vis-a-vis God? And then we can do a separate question like what's important to God? What does God value? What is his desire? And, and how does that interact with the world? But those are, it doesn't follow. What does follow is if I have rational desires, my rational desires are only for things of significance. A being who needs to metabolize food to live rationally desires food. A social being rationally desires friendship and company, right? A being who can be killed rationally seeks out things to protect themselves. A God does not rationally desire anything. A true God, right? One who's like completely transcendent, timeless, not dependent on anything. So the fact that God creates us does not necessarily mean we are significant. So I'm probably going backwards in the way that you've expressed, but wouldn't that be contradictory to the, the uh, Abraham? Like, if he was insignificant, then why is he so important at the same time? Well, that's what I said that we'll have to get to later. Yeah. But what, the significance has nothing to do with his own unique characteristics or properties. I see. No, it's not like, you know, God really needed an Abraham. Oh, Baruch Hashem, he found one. Like, no. It's like, I need a, sometimes you need a toilet, right? That's why I use the example. Like, sometimes you need a toilet. You ever been in that story? Like, you need a toilet. Like, there's no toilet. You need a toilet, right? God was like, I need an Avram. I really need an Avram. Oh, I found one. It wasn't, that's not how that happened. So, for whatever reason, Avram is important. It has really nothing to do with Avram, but it has to do with the fact that God is weird. Why should God need an Avram? I don't know. He's weird. A God shouldn't need an Avram. A, a monkey capable of doing algebra who also has prophetic. Like, okay, fine. That doesn't really change much. Okay. So what follows the rest of the chapter is the Alter Rebbe's first explanation of why everything is kalei chashiv or counts as nothing. Why did I say his first explanation? Because chapter 21 builds on that first explanation and deepens it by offering a second explanation. Now, in other words, at the end of this explanation, there's still going to be, you're still going to be argue what, there is in some sense still some significance remaining after the first explanation. And then that gets removed with the second explanation. Okay? So what's the problem with the first one? Well, we have to learn the first one. And, when we f- and if you come up with it in the middle, then I'll point it out that we'll talk about it later. I'm not getting bogged down. If you don't, then I'll explain it when we get to either the end of chapter 20 or the beginning of chapter 21. I'm not sure what point I'm going to bring it up. Okay? So what follows from now is explaining how the creations are insignificant. Now, what I want to... Insignificant to God. How insignificant? Com- completely. Completely. As insignificant as is possible. Absolutely insignificant. Because... Yes, yes, uh, yes. But, but here's the thing. You have to say they're absolutely insignificant because if you say they are insignificant to a degree, then that, to whatever degree they are, to whatever, de- to whatever degree they're not insignificant, is to whatever degree God's aloneness has been compromised and changed, right? Because remember, why is God's aloneness unchanged? Because everything is insignificant. If they're only insignificant to a degree, then his aloneness is only ch- unchanged, to a degree. So we need them to be absolutely insignificant for his aloneness to be absolutely the same. They're correlated. 
Right. Right. You can't at some point become significant because then his aloneness would be and compromised. That's, that's like people as a whole or everything God created. Everything. What about Zadikin? Everything God created. Do you want me to say that again? No, I just... Okay. Okay, by the way, this is a, one of these places where Hasidist and non-Hasidic Judaism diverge. Forget theology for a moment. If I'm going to live life with the goal of improving myself as a way to get closer to God, that sounds like a good idea, right? Then this doesn't mean anything. But this makes that whole project seem rather like no, irrelevant. irrelevant. Like if I'm improving myself, I'm not getting closer to God. I get closer to God by somehow coming to terms with my, my insignificance. Mm-hmm. Now you can see how those, are, like, those really change the flavor of your Judaism. What? Well, I, I, you still have to take this and stick it back into Judaism. This is an approach to Judaism, but it changes the feel, flavor of the Judaism, right? In other words, if a person works for 25 years to cultivate a knowledge of Torah and good character, right? Raise a family, yeah? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, yeah? <laughs> and then they come and they feel, you know what? I'm not perfect. But I need something. Yeah, this is, yeah. I'm, I'm, this is, they have what they call in the non-Hasidic world sipuk. They have a sense of satisfaction. Sipuk, satisfaction, right? A sense like, yeah, God had a plan for me to make to become a better version of myself, a holier version, a more moral version, right? And I've achieved that, and and so a certain amount of of sense of a sense of self satisfaction, and you know, not arrogance, but a certain degree of of of. of personal pride and that's, that's all, you know. And in that, I'm, I'm fulfilling God's purpose for me. And how would, if, if you took this idea and you said, if you take this idea seriously, if after all of that, you feel like, wow, I've accomplished something. I really, I've done it. I've, I've, I've made it. I fulfill God's will. Then, from the, then, then what? And therefore you have gotten closer to God? Or further from God. Considering God's is alone because everything is. And now, if you and I have two totally different senses of reality, that compromises any notion of togetherness, right? Togetherness is forming you have a mutual sense of reality. So if I'm going to be closer to God, that has to come along with a sense of my own insignificance. Real, real deep, profound insignificance. And so the trick to being a chassid is to throw yourself into becoming a better person in Torah and mitzvahs and raising a family in such a way that what happens? You become insignificant. Yeah. See, it's a very different flavor. You can't look at your kids or your job. I'm not telling you how. I'm just telling you. I, I, I have a friend who, who, who became Chabad and he said, chassidus doesn't solve your problems. It just creates new ones. <laughs> Before I thought the problem is how do I deal with my evil inclination? And how do I like stay disciplined? And how am I moral, right? And now it turns out how do I do all of that permeated with the truth that God and only God is real and God and only God is significant. And that somehow that is a manifestation of this and it's not really about me and my personal growth while being invested in it because Judaism says you have to be invested and engaged, right? What's that? We're not, we're, there's a reason why there's more to the book, Okay. There's a lot more to this book. 
but I, I, I'm stopping here because sometimes you can skip past kind of the thesis, the main point of it, not appreciate it, and then get bogged down in all the explaining details. This is a deeply challenging idea. It's challenging theologically. As we mentioned, like, well, then why does God do things? Like, where is he coming from? It's, it's also going to, it's deeply challenging from a, from a perspective. How do you live? Am I supposed to be invested and engaged and motivated in Judaism? And it's all about how the only one of significance is God. Even me serving him is not really supposed to feel like of significance. I don't know how that's supposed to work. I mean, maybe, maybe I do on paper. Isn't that almost like a birth and a death? Like you find this, you live your life going and working, working, working to significance and being doing the right things and the right life and the right this and the right that. And then if you go deep enough, then you come back down the hill and realize there's a nothingness to it. It's almost like a life and then a death of... There is is an aspect to that. I don't want to go too too much into how it works. I just want to now make it a little bit worse. Let's say you... You buy, you drink the Kool-Aid, you buy into this whole thing, okay? You know what human beings are really great at? Twisting things. So now, what do you think is really significant? Recognizing your own insignificance. So you live a whole life of internalizing how the only real thing is God, the only thing that barely matters is God. Judaism is about God, it's not about me. And you really feel that, and you feel that way, and therefore you feel significant and accomplished. (laughs) Which is why part of being a chassid is just kind of embracing a certain existential tragedy of things. <laughs> Which means you either have to choose to be joyous in principle or you'll be miserable as a chassid. And I'm very serious about this. Like, a chassid can't do things to them become joyous. He's like, it has to come like, there has to be something like fundamental joy about this thing from the outset because there's something paradoxical and tragic built into the whole thing. And so either, either, in other words, if you, if you think like at some point I'm going to get there, then Hasidus will have her be frustrating. And, and you see how that comes out from this idea? Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get closer to God, and, and God's alone is uncompromised, because nothing other than God is significant, any time I feel like if I just got there, then it would be good, then I'm giving significance to something other than than God. And, as a, and then that's just going to get Okay, so but this leads to some this leads to some very interesting things. I'll tell you a funny story. There was a the second Chabad Rebbe, um, known as the Mittler Rebbe, which means the Middle Rebbe. Why was he called the Middle Rebbe? There's seven Chabad Rebbes. You'd think the fourth one would be called the Middle Rebbe, right? He was given that name in the third generation of Chabad. <laughs> so, really? so he was. What was he called before that? He's called the Rebbe, oh, and before that he was called the Rebbe's son. See, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works. <laughs> um, the Rebbe's son, the Rebbe, right? The middle Rebbe, because now it's in between the, the old Rebbe and, and the current Rebbe. Okay. And the name stuck. Um, we don't have a picture of him. So he, one of the things that he did, instituted, was that in order to spread the teaching of Chassidus, he made a rule that anyone who came to the town of Lubavitch, which was the capital of uh, Chabad at the time, that's where he gets the name, Chabad Lubavitch, um, when they came back, they had to take the long way home and they had to stop at every village on the way and, re- and recite the Hasidic discourses that they'd heard from the Rebbe as a way of teaching the teachings of Hasidus to spread it because you know, it wasn't like you were going to put it on social media back then. And um, now the way this works is these discourses are quite long. I mean, you're talking discourses that are 20, 30, 40, 50, sometimes 70 pages in length and they're printed. 
and you would and you were expected to rem- remember them not necessarily word for word, but, but point by point clearly, and then to recite them over in a way that was clear and coherent that people would understand and be, wow, this is good stuff. I want more of it. So there was one young man who was very good at this. He was very good. And what happens when you do stuff that's very good you're, and you're very good at it, and it's a social activity, so people are aware that you're really good at it? How do you feel about yourself? You feel very significant, right? You feel like... Yeah, there's something to me. In Hebrew, we call this, in Hasidus, we call this yeshus. Yeshus, from the word yesh, there is. The there isness. Like, yeah. There's, there's a pretty significant guy you know, called me who's able to do this pretty significant thing. And he started to get this stronger feeling of, of, of yeshus, which is not the same thing as arrogance. Like, arrogance is always going to hold on. I'm better than others, and, I'm, and I step on you. It's a, it's a different idea. They're related, but they're not the same. So um, he came back to the middle Rebbe, the middle Rebbe, and he said, uh, I want to stop. I want an exemption. This is destroying my, uh, my, my, my growth as a chassid, right? Because I, I come here so I can become more closer to God. Going closer to God, recognizing that he is alone and nothing of else is of significance, including myself. And then I go and spread the teachings and I end up feeling more significant. <laughs> so what did, the, what did the Rebbe tell him? Close, but he said, you might stink like an onion, but you're still going to have to recite chassidus. What does that mean? You're preoccupied in whether you feel your own insignificance. So what are you giving a lot of significance to? Your own internal experience of things rather than spreading the truth of God. Stop thinking about it, basically. And the Reb actually pointed out, onions, they don't smell very nice, right? But when you cook them, they make the food taste good, right? Mm -hmm. So he says, if you can not let this bother you, it's actually, it's actually a greater sense of your own insignificance than not feeling your own significance. Not getting bogged down by the fact that you would like to feel a certain spiritual thing and get that in the, get, have that get in the way of God's truth is a greater sense of your own insignificance than feeling your own insignificance. But you see what I mean? Like, it, it, the problem is once you hear this story, you're like, oh, so that's... That's the key thing. You can always like... Your mind keeps twer- twisting it, and, and so it has to be a way like you just don't get stuck there. There has to be a kind of an alacrity in your life, which is one of the reasons why the simcha is so important. Anyway, that's the, the core idea. All right. Why are they... Why are they nothing? Why are we all nothing? For the coming into being of all the upper and nether worlds... Out of non-being, their life and existence, sustaining them from reverting to non-existence and not as was before, is nothing else but the word of God and the breath of his mouth. Blessed be he that is clothed in them. So here is the starting idea. Things, God created stuff, right? And he mentions here three aspects of a created being. He says that they come into being from non-being. They have a life and an existence that persists, right? They don't revert back into non-being. In other words, everything that God created originally didn't exist, now it came into existence. That's number 1.1. Everything that exists has a life. 
That's point number two. And everything that exists has something that keeps it in existence, which is point number three. Now, everything about every created being is comprised, fits into that, that kind of three-point summary. And what is it that brings us into being? What is it that gives us our life? And what is it that keeps us in existence, perpetuates our existence? No. What does the text say? The word of God. The word of God and breath of his mouth. So, why is that important? I know. It's not nice of me, is it? It's not you. There was a very, very wise man named um, Rabbi Moshe, the son of Maimon, known as Maimonides or the Rambam. And he wrote a book called The Guide for the Perplexed. Oh, yeah. Is that contradicting to what? No. Someone told me it is. Then why are there footnotes and sikhas to it? It is. I mean, if you just learn it on its own as a self-contained thing, your whole sense of Judaism is going to be very different than Chabad. But if you learn Chabad, it can be... Yeah. There's different schools of thought. Some schools of thought are capable of digesting and incorporating other schools of thought. Chabad is one of those. So Chabad is very good at incorporating ideas from other schools of thought. But if you try to like take Chabad and stick it into the Rambam, it doesn't work. But you can take the Rambam and stick it into Chabad. It's like small fish can eat the bigger fish. Sorry, the bigger fish can eat the smaller fish, not the other way around, right? That's what I meant. Um, so he, he, has a, he has in the beginning, he has a list of seven reasons why books will contradict themselves or authors will contradict themselves. He says there's an eighth, but that's just the person forgot what they previously wrote. And he says that doesn't count, so I'm not, you know. There's, there's actually a Hebrew edition which has footnotes, and, the, and in each of the seven he gives examples. And on the eighth he says, there are so many examples, but out of respect for the authors, I will not mention any. Oh. <laughs> Hebrew. But the, um, so the Ramah says, one of the reasons is, what if you have to teach something? And we'll call that thing A. But the only way you can really understand A is if you already know B. The problem is, understanding B depends on knowledge of A. How are you supposed to teach such a, such a thing? I can't teach you A because you don't know B. But I can't teach you B because you don't know A. So what am I supposed to do? You either give up or you teach both of them at the same time. No. But like, you lie. Teach the That's right. You lie. You teach B. But you lie about B. You say B is A. No, you lie about B. In what sense you lie about B? You change B to, so it doesn't really need A. But it's enough of B that you can then use it to understand it. To understand it. And once you understand it, you go back and say, oh, by the way, B, it turns out. <laughs> and he says, that is the only way a person learns truly deep, profound things such as, you know, theology, mysticism. The only way to teach those things is that way. There's certain things that don't need to be taught that way, but there's certain things that necessarily need to be taught that way. So you should just know going forward, if you want to study this kinds of stuff, you have to be told things at one point which, um, to quote from a movie, are true from a certain point of view so that you can get to the next stage, but then you have to go back and realize that they weren't actually fully 
correct in how you would be, how you had been led to believe. If you're really good, you don't actually lie. You just say things that are misleading. If you'll notice, I never said God doesn't have. I just questioned you when you said God. Well, God speaks. He has breath. He has lungs. And I just question as if it's ridiculous. Nobody bothered to say, yeah, he does. He he does have breath. And here's the explanation why. Right? You just you just took you just took my skepticism as a given that he must not. But that was good enough to get to where we needed to go. But um, yes, apparently he does have words and breath and a mouth actually. Does and mean, and lungs, and lungs. Does that mean that that was the reason why he his intentions? No, 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 no. Oh, no, no, no. so it doesn't go backwards. It doesn't. We're gonna have to. Okay. So now, what is the difference between sunlight and a table? And you think Rabbi Kaufman? There are many differences between a sun, <laughs> sunlight and the table. That's exactly what's the difference between health and an elephant and? A plum. An elephant and a plum? I enjoy eating plums. They're both, they're both purple, but the elephant's gray. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what the color white people say. <laughs> okay. Now. Um, That's why they're recorded. <laughs> Will you please state your name for the record? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? She's actually colorblind. That's <laughs> but doesn't colorblind not have to do with gray and purple? Oh, we were talking about yesterday. No, like, not like a literal colorblind. Like, oh. we get art into art. Okay, yeah. fine. There's arguments of color. Okay. Um, <laughs> the difference is like this. A table, the characteristics of a table are a negotiation between the carpenter, in terms of the carpenter's intent, desire, plan, skill, on the one hand, and the capacity of the wood, on the other hand, right? Um, some wood, I don't know if you know this, but some wood is just really not good for making tables. It's too soft, right? Some wood, um, you know, you can make it into a table, but you really need the right tools, and if you don't have the right tools, the right skill, you can't do it well, right? It's too hard, or, right? you, it's the same thing, not just the table, right? Um, pottery is the same way, right? Teaching. Right? The success of teaching is a negotiation between the skill of the teacher as the teacher, right? and the skill of the student as the student, devotion to the teacher, devotion to the student. Right? You need two parties that come together, and they produce a product that neither one can take full credit for. Right? Does make sense? What about the sunlight? What does the sunlight do to? The sun. Right? Are there any other influences in the sunlight? So the, so the sunlight has nothing to it other than what it gains from the, what it gets from the sun, right? Mm-hmm. So if the sunlight isn't to your liking, it's the sun's fault. Again, I'm not talking about the sunlight which is us. Then you get the clouds and other stuff, but the sunlight itself, right? But if the table is not to your liking, maybe it's the carpenter's fault. But maybe that was the only wood that was available, right? If the students don't know the material when they take their exams, I mean, maybe it's the teacher's fault, but maybe it's the student's fault, right? Make sense. If God made the world in coordination, in cooperation with some other influence, then things about the world will be the product not just of God and what he bestows to the world, but also that other influence, right? It's like people, parents, and God. So what brings things into being? What gives them their life and what maintains them? Just the word of God. 
So is there anything to the creations that they do not gain from the word of God? They're like the sunlight, right? They, they have nothing other than what the word of God gives them. Whereas like the table has characteristics that are attributed to the skill of the carpenter, but characteristics that are attributed to the capacity of the wood. Or some characteristics which are because of the interaction of the two. That makes sense? Yeah. Okay. So, significance, which is the topic of our discussion. Can the creations be more significant than the word of God? Can the creations be more significant than the word of God? If everything about the creation, their coming into existence, their life and their perpetuated existence all stems solely from the word of God, whatever significance they have would have to be derived from the word of God. And, if, and therefore, could they have more significance than the word of God? So if, just if, the word of God had zero significance, what would follow about the creations? It has zero significance. And so what follows is an explanation, which we'll start tomorrow, about how the word of God, not, not you and me, but the word of God is? Significant. Insignificant. insignificant. How insignificant? Absolutely. Absolutely. So if an absolutely insignificant thing brings you into being and enlivens you and perpetuates your existence, how much significance does it confer upon you? Zero. Zero. Would it be less? It, it less in a certain sense because you're still, you're still dependent on the other thing. But yeah. in another no, sense, no. Yeah. Less than nothing, right? The completely insignificant thing brings you into being, gives you your life and perpetuates your existence. So you're like less than insignificant. So we're saying that God's word is completely insignificant. Mm-hmm. That's where the altar was going to go with this, right? Not the tables, the chairs, and the monkeys are insignificant. The actual thing that created them. The word of God and breath of his mouth that creates them is insignificant. That's crazy. That is crazy. I finally, someone understands Chassidus. <laughs> if you don't say it's crazy, it means you're not getting it. It's crazy stuff. That's crazy. Now I get why they had a whole like, thing against Can <laughs> I skip ahead and ask something for a second? Okay. Could the Jewish soul be from something higher than the word of God? What, would you like to open chapter two of Tanya? Okay. That's why I said no right away. Yeah, the the soul. Where is the where is the where is the godly soul of a Jew derive its being from? That's not what it says in Tanya. His chachma, his wisdom, whatever that is. I just know one thing about his chachma. It's not his word. Okay. Notice, therefore. Yeah. You know what else? You know what else doesn't come from the word of God? Well, obviously. <laughs> Torah. The Torah doesn't come from the Word of God either. The Torah also comes from Hashem's wisdom. You know what this really does is it really challenges your faith. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it really does. Like, if you are not, like, like. Do you know why? Why? Because for many people, their faith has place in their life when the faith isn't something that is treated that's the word I'm looking for. Rigorously. Mm. In other words, when faith is the realm of the naive part of the mind, mm-hmm. faith, and that naive part can be very strong, right? Naive isn't thinking that we're not. No, naive isn't that you don't think too much about anything. The opposite of being naive is being rigorous. Anyone here live a Chumash Rashi class? You learn the Rashi's commentary on the Chumash? Okay. 
And you like you read the when it's the beginning of class, you read the Rosh like you understand what the teacher wants. It's like pretty simple, right? And then you start reading it, and you're like, oh, it's not so simple yeah. because you're being rigorous, mm-hmm. right? Being rigorous is every not taking things for granted. When you start not taking things for granted, you start opening up doors, and inside those doors is stuff that needs to be sorted out. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that many people, the faith itself wasn't strong. It's just the faith was op- was resting in a part of the mind that was you know very hospitable to it. And the rest of the person kind of goes on, the rest of the person goes on without the faith. And that goes back to the idea that the, that the true unity of God in the person is when all parts of the person have the faith. Mm. And to get to the faith into the rest of the person, that's why the altar talks about tiny being the long, short path. Especially into your mind because it's like contradicting. Right. So, it's not, so it has to be worked through. Now, this is also why it's important that we're not using this as the basis of the faith. Mm. We're using this to process and internalize. Right. But you, right. Many many Jews don't want to don't want to have these conversations because mm-hmm. you 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 know it, it it it's easier to you know it's like they say ignorance is bliss if you don't realize how crazy and profound and weird and that what you actually are believing is then it doesn't bother you they believe it good. All right, so tomorrow we're going to just dive right into the topic of how God's word, how God's speech, how the breath of God's mouth is. Insignificant. How insignificant? Completely, Completely insignificant. What? And therefore it follows that the world that is created and enlivened and sustained by his word is obviously. Insignificant. There we go. What are we doing? <laughs> we're making progress. Yeah.